So welcome to Lesson 14 of the Study of Galatians. We're in the most controversial chapter of the book. We're in chapter 3, and that's the one that's most often used to say that Paul taught that the Torah was no longer valuable. The teaching goes something like this. The Torah can only condemn. It doesn't have the power to save, but only convict. And it's been replaced by Yeshua, who's by sacrifice, who by his sacrifice. He has the power to save and there's no condemnation in Messiah. Of course, the logic there is kind of convoluted because if you don't know you've done wrong, then there's no reason to think that you needed salvation, right? So where do you find out if you've done wrong? Well, Paul is dealing with this, not, not the value of Torah, but he's actually dealing with identity. Where do non-Jews fit into the plan of God and the people of Israel? The Jewish people have a distinct calling from God. And the non-Jews have a distinct calling from God as well. The non-Jews have been grafted into Israel, but the requirements, but the call and the requirements for the non-Jews is not the same as for the Jewish people. God has a different call for both, and that requires that they remain distinct. We can see this in Israel as well. As an example, the Jewish people are Israel. But only the Levites are allowed in the temple. The Levites are to dress differently. They have numerous restrictions on their lives that other Jewish people do not. So the Levites have a specific call within Israel and they are to remain distinct. Well, in the same way, non-Jews are grafted into Israel through faith in the Messiah, but they too have a specific call within Israel. And this is particularly true of non-Jews living outside the land of Israel. Let's look at this because there's so much confusion over this of late. We have, of course, the majority saying that the law has been abolished and it's no longer applicable or valuable for Christians. And then on the other extreme, we have those who say we should live as Jewish people live to include circumcision. Well, what's a fellow to believe? Well, usually when you're dealing with extremes, you find the truth somewhere in the middle. So, how does the call of a non-Jew who lives in, say, Rome and has been grafted into Israel through acceptance of Messiah Yeshua differ in Torah observance from that of a Jew living in the land? And let's keep in mind that we're speaking of Israel before even the destruction of the temple here. Well, difference number one is what Paul is trying to bring, uh, bring forth and is arguing for that they don't need to be circumcised or required to live as a Jew in the land. However, the Jewish people, they must be circumcised. According to the law, if they're not, they'll be cut off from their people, but not the non-Jew. To understand the difference, number two, let's look at the festivals in Passover. Is the non-Jew required to keep Passover in the same way as a Jew living in the land is required? The answer is no. Let's read. Exodus chapter 12, verse 24. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. When your children ask, what does this ceremony mean to you? Tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared the homes when he struck down the Egyptians. So, The non-Jew living in Rome, can he go to the temple and offer a lamb? 
So he can't have a Seder because a Seder requires what? It requires that you eat the lamb that you just sacrificed in the temple of God. We could have a mock Seder, but we cannot fulfill the command to keep the Passover because the requirements in keeping the Passover are not possible for him to do. He still can keep the Sabbath of unleavened bread, as Paul points out in Corinthians. He can still uh, keep the festival of unleavened bread and eat only unleavened bread for seven days, and he should. But the requirement for killing and eating the lamb is not required of him. It's for the Jewish people in the land only. Right? How about Shavuot? Let's read the instructions for Shavuot because the same principle applies. Listen, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 15. From the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks, count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath and present an offering of new grain to the Lord. From wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour baked with yeast as a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord. Present this offering, this bread, present with this bread seven male lambs, a year old and a, without defect, one young bull and two rams. They will be a burnt offering to the Lord together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, an offering made to the Lord by fire and aroma pleasing to the Lord. Okay, so now when you read this, how much of this can a non-Jew living in the land of Rome do? Well, he can have the sacred assembly. He can do no servile work, and he should. But that's about it, right? So this is really a requirement for the Jewish people, particularly those living in the land or on a pilgrimage to the land. One more example from the Torah. This one has to do with dietary laws. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 21. Do not eat anything you find already dead. You may give it to the alien living in your towns and he may eat it. Or you may sell it to the foreigner, but you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Certainly, certain dietary laws of the Torah do not always apply to the non-Jew either. Do I think that we as followers of Yeshua should keep the dietary laws? Yes, I do, but that's not the point I'm trying to make. The point I want to make is this. The Mount Sinai covenant is not entirely binding, nor was it meant by God to be binding on the entire world. And yet, as we read of the salvation of God, it's going to go out to the ends of the earth. So God in His Torah makes distinction between the Jewish people and the non-Jewish people in the rest of the world. Pretty simple, right? So the point I want to make is the same point Paul is making. God in his Torah has made distinction between the Jewish people and the non-Jews. Just as he made distinction between the Levites and the Jewish people, he made distinction, and this is important, we are to keep those distinctions. That's what Paul is trying to get across. That's why Paul tells the Corinthians this in chapter 7, and verse 17 of 1 Corinthians. He says, Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping the commands of God is what counts. 
in order for the plan of God and the prophecies of God given to men like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and even the prophecies of Yeshua, in order for them to be fulfilled, there must be a large presence of men from the nations worshiping God and obeying God in the way God gave them to obey and worship. And there must be a presence of Jewish people worshiping God and obeying God in the Messiah and in the way that God gave them to live in worship. The problem is for Paul is when Gentiles are required to become for all intents and purposes Jews, then the distinction is lost and the plan of God is destroyed. In the same way, after the first century, the Roman church set out to make Jewish people for all intents and purposes non-Jews. In what was required of them. The church says, hey, now that you're saved, have a ham sandwich. You're no longer a Jew, you're a Christian. And because of that, many Jewish people lost their identity that God gave them. This too destroys the plan of God. In order for the plan of God to be realized, there must be a Jew, uh, the Jew must be a Jew, and the non-Jew must be a non-Jew. Both, both must be in Messiah and doing what God asked them to do. Obeying God and worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And we saw this last week. It's not going to change. Even in the kingdom. We know that because when, God, when John was looking at the throne of God, he saw people from every nation, language and tongue. If we look at Zechariah, we see the same thing. Zechariah 14, verse 16. Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king the Lord Almighty, to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And if any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, well, they will have no rain. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague he inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. In the world to come, there's going to be a presence of those from the nations who will go up and worship the king. And this is the point Paul is making. Non-Jews, not only do they not have to convert as required by the rabbis, it actually destroys the plan of God. So the next time someone tells you that the church is obligated to keep all the commands of the Torah, you'll know that that was never God's intention. Because God made it impossible for non-Jews to keep all of the Torah. However, we can't keep the Sabbaths of God and we can keep the requirements that God gave specifically to the non-Jews and keep the distinction He gave to the Jew and the non-Jew. And I might add, we should do those things. Amen? Well, it destroys more than the plan of God, than that part of the plan of God. This thought that non-Jews must keep Torah as a Jewish person in order to be accepted and be part of the world to come also destroys the very faith that saved the person in the first place. Which will be the thrust of Paul's argument here. To prove all of this, in verse 6, Paul changes his argument from one of personal experience of the Galatians, having received salvation and the Holy Spirit by faith and not by works, to one from Torah itself, to one of speaking of Abraham. It's quite possible that these influencers have used Abraham to make their case for circumcision. 
I hear this all the time, even today in the Messianic movement. Those who try to make the same case for a Gentile conversion and circumcision, they will say things like, well, we're the children of Abraham. Abraham was circumcised, therefore we should be as well. So it's very likely that the influencers are using Abraham to make their case because, as you know, from the old saying, there's nothing new under the sun. If you hear it today, you probably heard it back then. So we can certainly imagine that it was used in Paul's day, and I found a midrash that kind of supports that. I put it up here for you. We must also never forget that Abraham was the first believer and thus had no one to look upon. He established his own precedence. His faith was more difficult to come by than ours, for we are believers, sons of believers. For our forebearers already paved a road of unswerving faith. It is no wonder then that the Torah emphasizes Abraham's faith as meritorious and noteworthy. Abraham was considered the very first believer by the rabbis, or we could say, and I'm sure the influencers have made the point, that he was the very first proselyte. And their argument would be, if our father Abraham was circumcised, then all believers, all people of faith must be circumcised to be a son of Abraham. And Paul is going to address this argument by turning the argument around on them. Paul's argument will also center around Abraham. And this, of course, will be a very powerful argument for a number of reasons. The first, remember, the final state of a Gentile who had converted to a full proselyte through going through this conversion process of the rabbis was that he became a son of Abraham. Well, here Paul is going to show that you become a son of Abraham not through this process, but by faith. And he'll make the point that Abraham was found righteous by his trust in God long before he was circumcised. Let's read chapter 3, verse 6. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have the faith, who have faith, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Paul begins by quoting in Genesis chapter 15. And if we look at this chapter, we're going to find that, hey, Abraham was a Gentile. Not just that, but as we've seen, the rabbis even teach that he was the very first believer or the very first proselyte. He's not only referred to uh, by the rabbis as their physical father, but also their spiritual father. So if one is righteous, then he is a son of Abraham. And we can look to that, as I said before, we can look to the conversion process of non-Jews and see this. Once he was circumcised, once he vowed to live as a Jew, once he was immersed, he was said to be a son of Abraham. And Paul's point here is that Abraham is credited as righteousness before circumcision. Not uh, by, and he was, he was uh, credited righteousness through faith and not works. Because the text says he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What is meant there? He believed God. Well, we have to look back 
to what was said previously to find out. Genesis chapter 15 verses 1 through 5 say, After this the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And he said, So shall your offspring be. What he believed was that God was going to give him a son, an heir. Not only that, but that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. That means not only his son would be his heir, but in turn, his heir would have sons as well. And they would have sons, and they would have sons, until their offspring was as numerous as the stars in the sky. And Abraham trusted, and not only that, he stood firm in that trust that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Abraham trusted and stood firm in God. And that's what it means to believe, to stand firm. He stood firm that God would give him a son from his own body to be his heir. You see, the whole of what God promised Abraham was dependent upon a son, an heir. Let's look back to see what else God promised Abraham. Chapter 12 and verse 2 says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. He says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Well, guess what? That promise requires that Abraham have heirs. And then he says, and all the people will be blessed through you. That requires that Abraham have at least an heir. And we all know who that heir was. So the blessing of Abraham, that all peoples of the earth is, will be blessed, is predicated on him having heirs. And he believed God for those heirs, and that was credited to him as righteousness. That's what makes the offering of Isaac so powerful an event. He's about to sacrifice the heir through which the promise of God was dependent. And so we learn that he not only believed God, but he remained steadfast in that belief. He stood firm in his belief on the promises of God. And that is what gave him such great confidence in God. When he offered his only son Isaac, Abraham not only believed that God would give him an heir, but he believed that through his heir, all nations of the earth would be blessed. And so he reasoned that God would keep his promise even if he would have to raise his son from the dead. And God did. He raised his son Yeshua from the dead. Then he says, understand then that those who believe those who have made the same, who have the same trust, the same standing firm in the promises of God, are sons of Abraham. And again, to the Jewish people at this time, that was a title reserved for those who had fully converted. Scripture foresaw that like Abraham, the Gentile from the nations would also be justified by faith. And like Abraham, they have no Torah. They have no Sinai covenant. 
They had no circumcision, just like young foo last week, right? So to all who believe that trust and stand firm in that trust, it will be credited to them as righteousness as well. Again, that word believe means to stand firm, though, to trust God, to bring about what he has said, to stand firm in the belief. Just as Abraham stood firm in his belief that God would raise his son Isaac from the dead, you have to stand firm in the belief that God raised his son Yeshua from the dead. Jewish people were distinguished by God so that his promise, the promise given to Abraham, would be fulfilled so that the entire world would see that God's promises to Abraham are yes and amen. They are the visible evidence on this earth that God is who He says He is and His promises are true. You know, Mark Twain was once asked if he believed in God and if the Bible were true. And if so, how he knew it was true. And Mark, said, Mark Twain said, you only have to look at the Jewish people. So understand, if the Jewish people disappear from the earth, then it would be apparent to all that the promises of God had failed. Why else do you think the adversary has spent millennia trying to destroy the Jewish people from the face of the earth? Well, what Paul is saying is the same is true of the non-Jew. If the non-Jew who trusts in God disappears into the tribes of Israel, then the promises of God will fail as well. It will appear to have failed. Now we begin to understand why this is so offensive to Paul. We have Jews, we have non-Jews who believe on Messiah Yeshua. They believe that Yeshua died for them. And all that believe who will be saved in part of the world to come. And I don't need to quote the verses, you know. We all know them. They're some of our favorite passages. So they believe, but again, remember, Abraham stood firm in his belief. And to be sons of Abraham, they must stand firm as well. You see, that's the other point Paul is trying to make. If Abraham stood firm in the promises that God had made to him, then his sons, through faith, will stand firm in the promises of God made to them as well. He's saying if you receive the promises of God, his salvation that was promised to go out to the ends of the earth, then you have received and you have received the promise of the Holy Spirit to both guide you through life and give you and work miracles in your life by faith by trusting God as Abraham, then you must remain faithful to that promise. You must remain steadfast in that promise. The influence, of course, influencers, of course, are saying, you've received Messiah and the Holy Spirit, but to remain and to have a share in the world to come and for us to have fellowship with you, you have to convert. Paul is saying, that's not the promise. That's not what God said. That's not standing firm in the promise. The promise was... And through your offspring, all nations on the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. You see, there has to be a visible presence on the earth of God blessing the nations. That promise is confirmed by Isaiah. We looked at this. We'll look at it again. 49 verse 6. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. His salvation is going out to the ends of the earth. And as we've seen, 
It was not God's intention that non-Jews at the end of the earth live as Jews. It's impossible that they do it. 56 says, And the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve Him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship Him, and all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. You have to stand firm in the faith. Because just as Mark Twain said, I know the Bible to be true and that there is a God by seeing the Jewish people, so too should it be said, I know the Bible is true and God exists and Yeshua is the Messiah by how many of the nations have bound themselves to God through Messiah Yeshua. Amen? So the nations are saved by God through faith. And if they look to another source for their right standing then they'll no longer be standing firm in that trust in God. Amen? To what can we liken it? Well, we've talked about it before. We can liken it to those who turn to orthodoxy in our messianic movement. They didn't stand firm in the promises of God, in the promised Messiah. So if the nations are saved by God, how is that that the nations receive faith? Ephesians says this about faith. Listen to what it says. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not as a result of works so that one may boast for we are His workmanship created in Messiah Yeshua for good works which God has prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Did you see that? What is faith? Well, faith is a gift from God. Trust this trust in God, it, this trust in His, in this steadfastness to stand firm in the promises of God, no matter what happens, it is a gift of God, so that no man can boast. It's kind of hard to accept, isn't it? When we see some walk away from Yeshua and we still stand firm. How can it be a gift of God that I'm still standing firm? And how can it be that others don't? That's kind of the question of the age, isn't it? Well, remember last week we hung young. And we spoke of how he saved so many with his testimony. Think for a moment. Where did he get the faith in God to go forth and even tell his testimony? Why didn't he just get up out of bed and say, Oh, I don't know what happened. Where did he get the courage to defy the Chinese government who had killed nearly all of the Christians in the land, destroyed nearly all the Bibles and any vestige of the worship of the God of Israel? Where did he get that kind of faith? It can only be a gift of God. The miracle worked in his life was a gift from God. And that gift not only gave him his testimony to win those lives for Yeshua, but it gave him the steadfastness to stand in the face of extreme opposition. It gave him the hunger to know God to the degree that he sought out his word and spent seven days copying the Messianic writings in just seven days. That was a gift from God. Yeshua said this, listen, he said this, I tell you the truth. 
If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Well, remember, think back to the testimony of Jung Fu. That's about what he had. Faith as small as a mustard seed, if you can even call it faith. I might think of it as his praying for seven days as more like desperation. I sure hope this works. But even that is all the faith that was needed. God says this of Israel. And he says it of Israel, but I know from my own life it's true as well. For all men. He says this in Hosea. I will go away and return to my place and they will acknowledge me, acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Sometimes that faith as small as a mustard seed can't even be found until the afflictions of life become so great that you turn in prayer to God. Jeremiah says this. He says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek and find me and when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Again, that's spoken to Israel, but I know from my own experience that it's true of all men. Faith is a gift of God and great faith is a great gift 